I tell you, Elizabeth and I are still thrilled to be here and to be part of the Hendersonville Church. Never before have I been in a church that has so emphatically insisted I take all the time I want. And so for that, I thank each and every one of you. (laughs) Do you like power? Back in 1991, a show came out called Home Improvement. And a significant part of that show was centered on a man's tool show. Of course, men in power, right? This tool show was called Tool Time, where typically they would be showcasing some tedious, mundane task. And then the host of the show, Tim, the tool man, Taylor, would ask his flannel-wearing assistant, what do we need to complete this task? And he'd often look to the audience to wh- who would respond in unison, more power. And after some grunting and some fanfare, they would wheel out some new Benford tool, some 5,100 high-powered twin-blade, 15-horsepower, fuel-injected garbage disposal or something. But so much of that show was focused on him amping up, souping up, creating something with more power. So what is power? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? We like to think we have the most powerful drill or motorcycle or laundry detergent Yet how do we feel when we switch gears a bit and talk about people in positions of power? Very quickly, we start to think oftentimes of those that abuse power, don't we? Yes, we're quick to realize that power, like many things, can be very good. It can also be very bad. It's like so many other things in life. It depends so much on how we use it. So this morning, I want to look at a very powerful person in the Bible and see just how they used their power. So if you brought your Bible this morning, I encourage you to turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, we'll be looking at a portion of the life of David. 2 Samuel, and we begin looking at a few things here in chapter 7 before we move on. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. And it's important that we begin here because now David is king, but there's full recognition of who has put him there, and rightfully so. And so we read in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. I took you from the pasture. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from, the follow, from following the flock, to be ruler over the people of Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great. Who will make David's name great? The Lord. That's right. And in verse 22, it's reiterated again. How great you are, O sovereign Lord. Now David is recognizing where the strength comes from. How great you are, O sovereign Lord. There is no one like you. There is no God but you. 
flip the page to chapter 8, verse 1. My Bible reads, in the course of time, David defeated the Philistines. Verse 2, David also defeated the Moabites. Verse 3, moreover, David fought Hadadazur, or however you say that, Hadadazur. Verse 4, David captured 1,000 of his chariots, 7,000 charioteers, and 20,000 foot soldiers. And so here we see success after success. And verse 5, when the Arminians of Damascus came to help that same king of Zobad, David struck down 22,000 of them. Verse 6, he put garrisons in the Armenian kingdoms of Damascus, and the Armenians became subject to him and brought tribute. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. And in case we missed it in verse 6, it's reiterated in verse 14. The Lord again gave David victory wherever he went. And so that sets some of the foundation. However, sadly enough, in chapter 9 and chapter 10 and chapter 11, we see little if even no mention of the Lord except in chapter 10 verse 12 where we read, be strong and let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. The Lord will do what is good in his sight. It's as if there's some degeneration, perhaps. And maybe I'm reading into it too much, but the Lord is mentioned less and less as there is more and more success. To where we get to this point, well, the Lord, he can just do what is good in his sight. Don't worry, God, I've got this under control. We've been through this a few times before. I can take it from here. And so we flip over another page or two in our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11. And this is the story that we will be focusing on this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 11. And we read, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. Now let's notice some details here. It's spring. It's after the rainy season. The roads were good. There was plenty of food for the troops. And so this was the time when kings, when kings go off to war. And who is David? He's the king. And so the writer wants us to know this is the time that kings go off to war, yet David sent Joab. And the whole Israelite army. That word for sent in Hebrew is shalak, used 23 times in chapters 10, 11, and 12. As if there's been this deliberate shift of power. Before God was sending David, now David is the one doing the sending. I mean, after all, if I am a powerful person, I make the command. I send them here, I send them there. They follow. And so David sent Joab. 
And in fact, in chapter 10, we see two kings busy sending in this strategic play for power. Their sending is all about human power struggles and the who and who has access to the most strength in order to dominate the other. And so here in verse 1 of chapter 11, David sends while he, the king, stays home. So continuing in verse 2. Well, the last of verse 1, but David remained in Jerusalem. Verse 2, one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a beautiful woman. Now, take note of what time of day it is. Evening, the word is really eventide, if you have your King James Bible with you, meaning twilight or sunset. And David is just rising. He's had a rather lazy day, wouldn't you say? And so David gets up, and he's walking around on the roof and sees this woman bathing. Now, bathing and cooking all took place in private courtyards, up on the roof, oftentimes protected from the neighbors around, but not protected from above. And part of the culture, which is still in practice today in Israel, is that you are not to go on rooftops at that particular time of day because as you peek down, you will see all kinds of people. That's the prime bathing time. And even archaeology will tell us that David's palace was up on the ledge and all the rest of Jerusalem was down below. And so what does these details tell us? It tells us that this is a deliberate action on the part of David. He wakes up late in the day, and he goes out when kings are supposed to be off at war. He goes out up on his roof at sunset. In fact, it mentions twice, in case you missed. From the roof, he went walking around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And then we see that word again. After he sees this beautiful woman, David sent someone to find out about her. Another power play. The man said in the end of verse 3, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah? There's another detail the writer wants us to pick up. Isn't that Bathsheba? Don't you know who that is, David? I mean, maybe I'm mistaken. Is this a trick question? And Uriah, of all people, is one of David's original mighty men. Someone he would have been friends with. Yet he sees her and sins for her. Verse 4. Then David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him. Here again, David is sending. And everybody knows that when the king sins, heads fall. I mean, after all, he's the king. We do what he says. He has authority. He has everyone's support. And above all of that, he's a man of God. And so he sent for her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. 
and she had purified herself from her uncleanliness. Then she went back home, and the woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Oftentimes we think, Bathsheba, you just came? Why didn't you stand up? And certainly we would like to see the story played out that way. That would be our number one choice. But instead, she submits to the power and the authority and the position and the manipulation, if you will, of the king. And she is used and victimized. And here we have an abhorrent abuse of power. And unfortunately, this kind of thing still happens today. In homes and in schools, in the workplace, in churches. Have you ever heard the expression, is there an elephant in the room? It's an English idiom for an obvious truth that is being ignored by the people in the room. It's based on the fact that if there was an elephant right here in the middle of the church, it'd be pretty hard to ignore it, pretty hard to be silent about it, to pretend it's not there. But I wonder today if there's an elephant in the church. Is there an elephant in your home? Is there a taboo subject that's not brought up for fear of the consequences? Because too often, the shame and the dysfunction and abuse gets covered to protect the family reputation. Only to perpetuate dysfunction from one generation to the next and to the next. And we go to great lengths sometimes to keep everything under wraps and to come to church and everything's okay and we smile and we say happy Sabbath. Yet the dysfunction continues because we're scared. What would people say? And the pain and the hurt and the guilt go on. Back in 2007, the Catholic Church settled a lawsuit in California for $660 million because of 508 victims of sexual abuse by members of the clergy. So far, the church has paid out $2.6 billion in settlements to victims of sexual abuse and their families. And I would be surprised if some Christians from the Protestant persuasion did not feel some hidden sense of satisfaction when they heard about the problems with the Roman Catholic Church. Unfortunately, we have the human tendency to look to the problems of others and ignore those in ourselves. Jesus said, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured unto you. Why do you look at the sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Why do you sense some satisfaction at the problems of others and don't notice the elephant in the room? We must acknowledge the elephant. And while the general public may have problems with abuse of one kind or another, we may be tempted to say, aren't we grateful 
that we don't have violence and abuse in our church. Unfortunately, studies among Seventh-day Adventists indicate that level of abuse among us is no different to what is found in the general population. This was an article that came out back in 2007 in the Adventist Review talking about this very idea, abuse in the Adventist church. It read on the front line, the front page here. And there's a couple of statistics I want to share with you. These are abuse categories and how many reported within our church to have experienced this. Potentially lethal actions, which would be threatening to use a weapon on you, or they did, or they beat you up, 9%. Almost 1 in 10. uh, Resources deprived or leveraging of the children. So you didn't have access to the family personal income, or you had restriction of the car, or deprived of heat, or food, or sleep, any of those, 22%. Sexual victimization. Used you sexually against your will. Use sexually degrading language towards you or about you. 26%. How about intimidation and physical violence? Insulted you, swore at you, called you names, destroyed property, cherished possessions, threatened to hit or throw something at you, threw, smashed, hit, or kicked something to frighten you, pushed, grabbed, or shoved you. 42%. Or even just controlling and demeaning behavior. Told you what to do and expected obedience. Made big family and household decisions without consulting you. Limited your involvement with others. Monitored your daily activities. Was extremely jealous or accused you of having an affair. 61%. If these statistics hold true. And you can argue that all statistics... They have a degree of variance and so on, and recognizing all of that, that still means that in our church this morning, there could be as many as 150 to 180 of you here today that have experienced some form of abuse. Violence is the number one cause of injury to women between the ages of 15 and 44 in the United States, number one. 1.8 million women are assaulted each year by the men they live with. And this has been in our bulletin. One in four girls and one in six boys are molested by the age of 18. Is that acceptable? Is that okay? If we ignore it, will it just go away? Now, I'm thankful for programs like what I saw in our bulletin. This End It Now, it's a combined ministry of ADRA and women's ministries in our church making an effort to end abuse in all of its forms, not just in this country, but around the world. And Diane Wagner has taken this on. In fact, a week from tonight, they're going to show a video and someone from ADRA will be here to speak on the topic specifically addressing child abuse. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for, for things that this specific church has done. Within our conference, everybody that deals with children under age 18 
has to go through this shield the vulnerable is what it's called. It's a, a background test. And it's also training. And every three years, we have to redo, re, review that and redo that. And that brings me comfort. We have little windows that have been put in in all the Sabbath school classrooms downstairs. And that's a good thing. <clears throat> but I wonder sometimes, too, parents, are you educated on the subject? Are you educating your kids? Making sure they know where the appropriate boundaries are and that if some line is crossed that they'll never feel judgment or that they're in trouble or anything else that they can come to you. Are you aware that most victims of child abuse are between the ages of 8 and 11 years old? And more than 90% of victims know their perpetrator in some way, and it's often someone people respect. Do you let your pl child play unsupervised in a bedroom or in the basement? The reality is we live in a broken world with far too much abuse. Any behavior that is a controlling nature is abuse. It's an abuse of power. An abuse of control on another. With a relationship, some may even feel you, or some may even use scriptural text in twisted and distorted ways to suggest what they try and do. A spouse needs to be submissive. She didn't know her place. She was not respecting me as head of the household, they might say. They might take wives, submit to your husbands out of Ephesians and distort it without reading other scriptures that say, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Or husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands ought to love their wives even as their own bodies. There are those that would suggest that the man is the boss. She has trouble planning her day. I need to tell her what to do. They might take Abraham commanded his children and his household after him and distort that text in Genesis without reading other scriptures as whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave just as the son of man did not come to be served but to serve. There are those that would suggest Marriage justifies any sexual behavior. We're married, after all. She must satisfy my needs. They might take, do not deprive each other from 1 Corinthians and distort it to justify anything without reading other scriptures. Like the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. At the end of the day, there is no excuse there's no justification of any abuse in a marriage relationship or any relationship. In the New International Version, the word they use for abusive is translation from the Greek word blasphemous. You don't need to know Greek to know the English word that correlates with blasphemy. And how appropriate because abusive behavior toward any one of God's creatures is blasphemy of God. 
Timothy says this person has a form of godliness, a different person in church than they are at home, a different person in the public eye, but quite different behind closed doors. It's all about Satan's original rebellion. It's all about power and control, one person being in charge and control of another. So we look back here at David's story in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 4. Then David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanliness, making sure we understand there's no excuse. This is David's child. And then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. And David is going to do all that he can to cover things up. He does a whole lot more sending. In fact, verse 6, so David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. Certainly my power can get me out of this mess. He tries to get Uriah to go home and sleep with his wife. But Uriah wouldn't think of doing such a thing. While the ark and all of Israel are on the battlefield. So he'd rather sleep at the gate. Plan B, let's get Uriah drunk. But as it turns out, Uriah has stronger morals drunk than David has sober. Finally, knowing Uriah's faithfulness, he sends, yet again, Uriah with his own death sentence. Put Uriah to the front of the line where the fighting is the fiercest. And finally, the word comes back that Uriah is no more. And look at David's response. Verse 25. Then David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. He shows no remorse. As if, carry on. And verse 27, after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And you would think it's all been successfully covered up. But the last part of the chapter, but the thing David had done, displeased the Lord. There is one more message yet to be sent, and this one comes from the Lord. Chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and he grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. 
and verse 5, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. You're absolutely right. And then in verse 7, then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of these things, and you came asking for more. In fact, it says in verse 8, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? God could say the same about our sin, couldn't he? And in verse 13, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Finally, David confesses of his sin. And as we continue on in the story, we see that his confession is genuine. David's story doesn't end like Saul's, does not end like that of Judas, but with that confession of his sin, healing could begin. But what a bitter price he and his family paid. Yet I submit to you this morning that nowhere in all of Scripture does the Bible accuse Bathsheba. And while we may wish she would have stood up, the fact remains that she was victimized. She was manipulated. Power was abused. And it would be easy to think that for the rest of her life, Bathsheba may have been riddled with guilt for what she had done. But God assessed the situation and is upset with what David has done. And Nathan, God's prophet, does not address her, but tells David, you are that man. I don't feel like it's a mistake that in Nathan's story, the ewe lamb is a little female lamb, innocently slain at the abusive power of another. In fact, patriarchs and prophets refers to this grievous sin toward Bathsheba. And I would imagine that there are many here today who have been abused and feel that they have had a part to play, that the guilt and shame is their own. And for years you've been carrying around that burden. But let me tell you, you were victimized. Power was abused. And I imagine for many here today, if God would assess your situation, he would probably say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for that grievous sin toward you. You didn't ask for that. You didn't deserve that. I'm sorry. Yet the devil longs to keep everyone involved trapped in the secrecy of guilt where there's no hope and only embarrassment. And the sinful behavior perpetuates and cultivates and destroys and the sins of the fathers are passed on to the sons. 
But when the Bible refers to that, that's not a curse, but merely a description of human nature. You don't have to go down that road. That doesn't have to be your destiny. You can talk about it. You can break the silence. You can seek help. Don't live a life of quiet desperation. Don't grow old, a desolate old man or a desolate old woman. Abuse can take many forms. It may not be physical. It may not be emotional. It may be a controlling behavior. It may be yelling. Whatever it is, don't be convinced that the best thing is to be silent, to be quiet about it. The time for being quiet has passed. Let no one be intimidated into the submission of quiet desperation for fear of disgracing a name. The time for silence is over. The Bible is certainly not silent. But you may be thinking, but who can I talk to? Where can I find safety? What will happen to me? Well, there's a lot of resources. And we've listed some in your bulletin. You don't have to scratch them down. They're right there. They're going to end up on your dresser at home. And you can take the time as you want to look through there and find a counselor that probably doesn't know you, doesn't know your family, and talk. Christian counselors listed in your bulletin. People that deal with this kind of thing all the time. And certainly you can come to myself or to Pastor Ferguson. We have a a woman elder that will keep things confidential. Talk to a trusted friend. Or you may be asking, what if I know of a situation but it's not me or my family? Well, if you follow Matthew 18's instruction, you need to talk about it. You should talk about it to the people involved. In the case of child abuse, it's the law. Yeah, but what happens in someone else's family, you may say, is none of my business. But friends, if we belong to a community of faith, where we love each other, what happens in your family is my business. It is my business. It is our business to build a community of faith where we care enough to confront, where we care enough to reach out to people. And so this morning, I just want to encourage you that there is hope Jesus came to provide healing today. And the gospel is open for the abused and the abuser. God's grace is sufficient and abundant for the person that is abused and the one who abuses. But you have to act. You have to do something. Do something to the sins of the fathers will not be visited to the third and fourth generation. You must speak out. You must talk about the elephant in the room. And I believe this church is a safe place to talk. 
You are loved here. There is help here. Don't live in quiet desperation. If you are abused or an abuser, there is help. And I believe the sunlight of open communication will be a good first step in chasing the cockroaches of abuse into the corner. So I challenge you, be quiet no longer so that healing may begin today. Let us pray. Dear Lord, abuse is such an ugly reality in this fallen world of sin. And for many here this morning, the scars are deep and the pain is real. Lord, we know this was never how you designed things to be, but that the devil has sown these seeds. But by your grace, we may find our voice this morning, that we may speak out, talk to someone, and allow the healing process to begin in our lives, in our marriages, and in our homes, starting today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.